Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Uriah St. Gist. Finally, we get to part two of the seven last plagues. I invite us all to bow our heads as we pray at this time. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to gather to worship. We thank you for freedom of worship. And we pray that we will worship you through your word, for the proclamation of your word. May our hearts be tuneful. May we focus on your word, on what you want to say to us. And may we be, may our hearts be malleable, be willing to be molded and fashioned into what you would want us to be. Please send your Holy Spirit to be in our minds, direct our thoughts. And as we interact with your word today, Lord, may we not be resistant, but may we be compliant to your Holy Spirit. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Let all God's people say, Amen. I also want to um, thank the children of our church. Um, they have been very supportive, very encouraging uh, to me, without mentioning names. Um, last Sabbath, and it's not the first time, um, two of them came to me, and one said, um, you're a very good preacher, and the other said, you're a very good pastor. Um, and I said, I wish the adults could learn something from the children. <laughs> we as pastors, we don't always get it right. And when you don't get it right, you hear it from the members. But when you do get it right, often members don't tell you. So I thank the children for being very affirming. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary to China. And he was a man of tremendous faith. And in his journal, it was discovered after he had passed his thoughts that reflected how much he depended and how much he trusted in God under difficult and trying circumstances. Hudson Taylor wrote, that God sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness. And he said that he is not expecting three million missionaries to come to China to support the work. But if God did send three million, he had no doubt that God had ample means to sustain three million missionaries. And then he wrote a very profound statement, something that I found very profound and encourages me, and I hope it encourages you as well. He says, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's 
supply. You are aware that over the last couple of years, the world has faced a pandemic that it has not seen in a long time. And the result of this is sweeping changes that have taken place that caused even churches, for example, worldwide to be closed. I remember the Sabbath before we closed. I remember reading on the news that in the country of Brazil, the entire Seventh-day Adventist church had decided, even before any government stipulation to do so, to shut down their churches. And I'm wondering, what is going on? Only to know that within a few days, the same would happen throughout Australia and many parts of the world. And it has caused some people to to think and to ask questions. And some have provided answers to those questions. Some of the questions are, is this the end? Is this the time of trouble? Is this the Sunday law with governments shutting down the churches? Well, I do not propose to give you answers to those questions today. But one thing that I did notice is how people reacted to what they believe was the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And we as Seventh-day Adventists, we have had an understanding of last-day events for quite a long time. We have been teaching and preaching. And what marveled me was some of the reactions that I saw. The reactions of fear, the reactions of anger, of militancy. And I wondered if this was how God wanted his people to react in the unfolding events of Bible prophecy. And I don't propose to give you an answer to that question either. All I propose to do is share with you what the Bible says. The last time we looked at the seven last plagues, the first part, I believe that I shared with you the difference between prophetic and apocalyptic writing. Now, does anyone remember the difference between prophetic writing and apocalyptic writing? Prophetic writing is aimed at waking up those who are asleep. But apocalyptic writing is aimed at calming those who are anxious and reassuring them. And the book of Revelation, although it might seem um, it, it has a lot of prophecy, but it is called the apocalypse for a reason because it is apocalyptic writing. And so the beasts and the the numbers and all of the symbols in Revelation are not meant to scare us. But they are meant to reassure us and give us peace knowing that God is in control 
And ultimately, Jesus will be victorious over the enemy. Do I hear an amen? So we are looking at the seven last plagues of Revelation. Peace in the midst of the storm. And I do recognize that some of the, 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 the anxiety that, has, that we have experienced over the last two years is not simply because of lockdowns and COVID and, and so forth. Some have experienced their own personal challenges that have created much turmoil in their lives. Is there a message in the seven last plagues that God can reassure us? Now, I had promised to share with you a picture last, the last time I preached this sermon, and I have it now, thankfully. When I preached part one of this message last year at another church, this was online on Zoom, um, by the end of the service, I received this uh, picture, this painting that was done by an eight-year-old girl, Hannah. And while I was preaching about the ten plagues of Egypt, she painted this picture and handed it to me. Now, oof, you can't see it because it's cropped off, sadly. The level of detail is what struck me with this, with this particular photo. Um, this is a picture of the... the Pharaoh's daughter coming to the river. And you can see the river. It's red with blood. And what's cropped out at the bottom? Um, fish bones. The fish that have, have died in the river. Um, and the princess there with her Egyptian makeup, makeup. That level of detail just blew me away. While I was preaching. An eight-year-old girl. So I hope that we can... We adults can pay attention in this, the message and gain some inspiration and some lessons. The seven last plagues fall after the close of probation. Now you say, Pastor, how do you know this? Well, the Bible tells us so. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 8. If you have your Bibles... Turn quickly with me to Revelation chapter 15 and verse 8. It says the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. That's the temple in heaven. And from its power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And we know what, what happens, what's happening at the moment in the temple. Jesus is interceding. He is pleading, he's, he's judging, and there is no activity, there's no human activity. No man, no one, it says, is able to enter. And that is an indication to us that the work of Jesus in the temple is finished. Probation is closed. No man has any opportunity anymore to accept Jesus as Savior. 
The seven last plagues also fall immediately before the second coming of Jesus. That's why they are referred to as the seven last seven last plagues. They will be the last thing that will happen. So that tells us that they are in the future. They have not passed yet and it is very unlikely that they are currently happening because that would mean probation has closed. How do we know that it's near the second coming? Revelation chapter 16 verse 15 The Bible says, uh, behold, I am coming, Jesus is speaking, as a thief, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. So, and actually this is recorded at the end of the sixth plague. And the seventh plague it's very exciting. It's the absolute last thing that will fall upon this earth before Jesus comes. So the seven last plagues are God's final opportunity to pronounce his displeasure upon human behavior that rejects him. God has always given a choice, an opportunity to accept him or reject him. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, he placed a tree to test Adam and Eve, to give the opportunity for obedience or disobedience. And man chose disobedience. He provided an ark. He told Noah to build an ark. And Noah preached for 120 years. The doors of the ark were open. The gospel was going out. Invitations were given to enter the ark. No one accepted that invitation except Noah and his family. Even the animals were obedient. But mankind, in his great wisdom and knowledge and sophistication, rejected the gospel. And God's judgment has always been pronounced upon those who have rejected his invitation. Because he is he's dealing with sin. And those who hold on to sin will be dealt with sin, will be dealt with just as sin is being dealt with. God is a God of mercy and he's a God of love. In Exodus chapter 36 verse 37, Moses had asked to see God and it is recorded and it says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And you would think that it would stop there because that's the, the wonderful, glorious picture of God that we want. A God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who forgives. And he is all of these things. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It says, yet, 
He does not leave the guilty unpunished. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 3. The story of the flood. The Bible says, then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. For they are mortal, their days will be 120 years. So God pleads with mankind, begs him. He provides the way of escape, the way of, of salvation. He advertises the path to safety. He begs and he pleads. He sends his Holy Spirit. He sends uh, human beings, fallen, broken human beings, messed up human beings, human beings who have made mistakes to other fallen human beings and begs and pleads and says, this is the way, walk ye in it. But some continue to reject God. But they will not be able to be rejecting forever. And it's possible to abuse God's kindness. To take it for advantage, for, 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 take it for granted. Believe that, oh yes, God will forgive me, I can do whatever I want. Or I will have enough time to repent, I will enjoy myself and be disobedient and have fun. But, you know, eventually God will take me in because that's the kind of God he is. Be very careful with that kind of thinking. He says, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. So while the gospel is going out, while the doors of mercy are open and the gospel is being proclaimed, many are accepting and choosing to be saved. But sadly, there are some who reject, who mock, who scoff, and who even go as far as persecuting God's people. They are so entrenched in their rebellion against God. They are so far from him that there comes a time when God says enough. And he will put a stop to sin and rebellion. And this is where the seven last plagues are relevant. Let's review the first plagues. Remember that the seven last plagues are a reference to the ten plagues of Egypt. And in those plagues, the ten plagues of Egypt, we saw that God's people were in bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh. Then they cry to God for help. And his cries or their cries reach towards heaven. And in response, God sends 10 plagues where? On the rebellious Egypt or on Pharaoh to be more precise. Because that's who God wanted to reach. And he sent these plagues in response to the cry of his people because of their captivity. 
ultimately, after the ten plagues fall, God's people are freed. They are released from their bondage. Then what happens? Then Pharaoh's army are not happy that God's people are freed. And they launch a final attack on God's people. But ultimately, they are defeated in that final battle. Remember when the children of Israel were crossing the Red Sea, they saw Pharaoh and his army coming. And when Pharaoh's army was in the midst of the Red Sea, Moses withdrew his rod. The sea closed in and drowned all of Pharaoh and his army in the sea. And then finally, after that victory, God's people celebrate the victory song or the song of Moses. Now, believe it or not, the seven last plagues will follow that exact same pattern. That exact same pattern. Now, some people may ask, why are there ten plagues, Pastor, in the Old Testament and there are seven in the, in the last? Why not ten plagues in the Old and ten last plagues? Well... Numbers mean something in the Bible. You see, to us, we read the Bible and we may, not, we may miss the significance of numbers. But for the Hebrew people, numbers meant a lot. You see, what we must understand was that writing was a very precious resource. You know, it's not like today you can... Sit at your computer, you can type, or you can get loads of words off your screen on the internet. Writing things down was, was very precious. And even before writing, even when writing was too much of a, a precious resource, things were transferred orally and from memory. So too many words were not a good thing all the time. And you know how we say a picture is worth a thousand words? Well, back then, a number could be worth a thousand words. Once you see a number, you get, there's a whole message that you get just behind that number. And we are told that the number 10 signifies a union or a collection of individual things that come together to form a union. So it is a system, the number 10, of smaller parts that go towards creating something as a whole. And so how is that significant to the ten plagues? You see, God, want, God did not, first of all, God did not even want any plagues to fall upon Egypt. He would have preferred if Pharaoh let his people go. Because Moses went to Pharaoh at first and said, let my people go. That was his mission that God gave him. And God would have preferred for Moses, to, uh, uh, Pharaoh to say, oh yeah, sure, they can go. But Pharaoh didn't do that, so God had to send the first plague. And after the first plague, God wished that Pharaoh would have, as a matter of fact, he did say, yes, you can go, but then he changed his mind. And so forth. So the ten plagues are ten individual attempts of God to try to reach the heart of Pharaoh. 
And it was only until the end, only when all of the ten plagues came together, that is when Pharaoh finally said, I don't want to see you. Go get away from here. But why seven? You see, by the time we get to the time of the end, probation is already closed. God is not trying to reach anyone. He's not trying to change anyone's mind. He is pronouncing his judgment. He is pronouncing his displeasure. And there's a reason for that. Seven in the Bible represents completeness or perfection. It's already done. It's already finished. He's not trying to Gain, gain anyone. And it is a mark of completeness. And as we unfold the seven last plagues, we will understand why it needed to be so. John is writing. John, remember, was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. John was only in his teens when he was with Jesus. Not only was he the youngest disciple, but he was the last to die. And when John is writing Revelation, he's most likely in his 90s. He's very old. And you can imagine what it would do for the church to have this last person, this last of the 12. It would give them great encouragement, but... They were under, the church was under severe persecution by the Roman Empire. The, 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 the Emperor Domitian was known to be one of the worst persecutors of the church. The streets of Rome ran with the blood of Christians, and there are 13 examples alone in the book of Acts of Christians under, or the church being under severe persecution. Now, so this is the, at the time of John writing about the seven last plagues. And he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christians, so they would understand that reference. For them, it is significant. The reference of the ten plagues of Egypt represented God's power prevailing over the civil power of Pharaoh. And he wanted to send a message, John wanted, well God ultimately wanted to send that message to the church that although you are being persecuted, although it seems that you are in captivity, you are in bondage, you are not free Trust in God because eventually God will prevail over that which is persecuting you. That which is trying to lock you in and keep you in bondage, God will prevail. And let's not forget that it's not just the civil power against the church. These were individual people that were killed and slaughtered. Soldiers um, breaking into houses and pulling people away. Individuals in the stadiums facing 
wild animals to be torn apart, given the choice to renounce their faith, but standing up for what is right, standing up for God. So this persecution was also very personal. And this is preserved. This is not just a nice bedtime story. A nice story recorded there of history. There's a reason why it is here for the church today. As we've discovered and as I've already told you, that these plagues will be released in the future. So this was a message, not just for the New Testament church, but this was a message for God's people today. Are you listening to me? Is there anyone being persecuted today? Secondly, the blood of the martyrs cry out. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, under the seals, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, how holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Symbolic writing. They are not crying out because they are dead, but their blood, symbolically, those who were tortured and, and, and martyred for the gospel, not just in history, but throughout the ages. Those who are being persecuted, the blood is crying out and asking, Lord, how long are you going to seemingly be sitting on your hands and doing nothing about this? They're crying out, just like the children of Israel cried out when they were in Egyptian bondage. And is God going to do something? When you are being persecuted, when you are being tormented and you are pleading with God, you are crying to him, you are praying to him, is he going to do something or is he going to remain standing idly by? Well, since we know that God sent the ten plagues upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, we know exactly what God is going to do in response to the blood of the martyrs, Christian martyrs crying out. God sends seven last plagues on the beast and his followers in response to the crying out symbolically of those who are being persecuted. Revelation chapter 16, verse 2, says, So the, the first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. That's where it's directed at. So should you be worried about the seven last plagues falling upon you? Only if you receive the mark of the beast should you be concerned. I don't believe anyone here plans to receive the mark of the beast. 
As a matter of fact, our church, in its mission statement, understands that the reason why God established us as a church is to warn the world about the beast and his image. Revelation chapter 14, verse uh, 9 to 12, the third angel's message. It says, then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on their forehead or in their hands, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That is the reason why we exist to proclaim this message to the world. Because those who reject God, those who accept the mark of the beast, automatically reject God. They will be rejecting God. And there is a warning for them of these plagues falling upon them. And remember, it's not to give them a chance to repent. That's gone. It is God pronouncing his displeasure. Because imagine God's people, those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. They are being persecuted. They are being tortured. They are in pain. They are being afflicted. They are suffering. You know what it feels like when you are doing the right thing and you are the one being punished? It makes you feel that you're doing the wrong thing and you should flip to the other side. But God has to tell his church, be patient. And send that pictorial message. That those who are rebelling and rejecting him. They are the ones that will be punished and inflicted. With pain and suffering. And it doesn't mean that God is not loving because how long has the gospel been going, going out? How long is the door of mercy and grace being extended? Every delay in the second coming, every uh, uh, time that the angels are holding back the winds of strife is to give people the opportunity to repent and receive Jesus. And when they continue to not just reject but to strike back at God and his people, that's when God puts his foot down. Verse 10 and 11 of Revelation 16, and the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Please make sure that you are not part of that group. I beg you, please. Pray every day that God will keep you faithful. And you may hold on 
in spite of persecution. As a matter of fact, let the persecution inspire you to be more faithful. Never give up. So God sends his seven last plagues upon the beast and his followers in response to the affliction and the persecution of his people. Those who are being persecuted sends the plagues on them, not those who are faithful to him. God's people were freed after the ten plagues, weren't they? So what do you expect will happen after the seven last plagues fall? Sure enough, Jesus returns to take his people home. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Yes. Paul says he does not want us to be, remain ignorant about those who are asleep. He says... The Lord himself. Hallelujah. It's not going to send an angel. This job is too important for Gabriel. Jesus wants to do it himself. He wants to be there to see the faces, the look of the faces on the faces of those who are coming up from the grave. You know, we often say, I don't know how theologically correct this is, but... There, there will be surprises in heaven. There will be those who are surprised that they are there. You may argue about that. There will be those who are surprised at who is there. Can't believe he made it. Really? But there will also be surprises about those whom you thought would have been there and who are not there. Let's forget about all of that. Just make sure you're there. And make sure while you have the opportunity, you help someone, especially those whom you love. You ought to love everyone. Help them. It's their choice. They can choose or reject. But help them to be in the kingdom. Jesus returns. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15 and 17 Jesus is speaking. He says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Jesus is on his way to redeem his people. And then verse 17 to 21, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl, last plague, into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven with, from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God. To give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away. And the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. Since the plague was exceedingly great. When Jesus comes... He's going to take care of every persecutor, every blasphemer, 
Every evil person, every evil man or woman is going to take care of them. Just as Pharaoh and his army were swallowed up in the Red Sea, God will take care of evildoers. And so it's not our job. It's not our job to fight and to cast stones. God is going to sell hailstones to take care of them. He calls us to love and pray for our enemies. Pharaoh's army was defeated in the battle. Now I should, I should go back here. You would think that that's the end. That's it. Jesus returns. What more do you want? That's the end. That's the climax of the story. But it doesn't end there. Why? Hmm. Because if you know your Bible very well, when Jesus comes, all the righteous go to heaven for how long? 1,000 years. Is Satan destroyed then? No. Where is he? Bottomless pit. Where are the wicked? They are dead. Lying in the graves. I'm like that. I'm liking the I'm liking two things. I'm liking the fact that you're actually answering me, and I'm liking the fact that everyone's saying the right thing because you're very good Bible students. And when after the thousand years are over, what will happen? Satan will be loosed. And there is that final battle when when uh, when the holy city, New Jerusalem, is coming down from heaven, then Satan rallies the wicked and launches that final attack against God's people. And they will be cast into the lake of fire, never to be seen anymore. Isn't that wonderful? But again, you'd think, well, that's, that's it. It's the end of the story. No. There is something else that happened to the children of Israel that will also happen with God's people. God's people celebrate just like the children of Israel celebrated on the other side of the Red Sea. God's people will celebrate in victory. The song of Moses. In Revelation chapter 15, verse 2 to 4, it is recorded. And I saw something like a sea of glass. I love how John puts it. It wasn't a sea of glass. He saw something. He didn't quite know what it was. It was something that he had never seen before. And the best way he knew how to describe what it looked like, it looked like a sea that was made out of glass, mingled with fire. Something spectacular. Something brilliant and fascinating. But what is most important, those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on that sea. Of glass, having the harps of God. And the Bible says they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous 
are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of Saints. I don't know if you can sing or not. But I want to put it to you that it's time to start practicing that song of Moses. I don't know what we have the lyrics. I don't know what the music will be like. I don't know what the melody will be like. But make something up. And sing that song of victory. Because victory is guaranteed. We have it there recorded in the Bible. How that great conflict will end. And so church, what we have seen in the last two years of mandates and lockdowns and churches shutting. We as Seventh-day Adventists, we know what will happen. How our rights will be taken away from us. But we're okay with that, aren't we? Because we know what it means. It means that because we are standing faithful to Jesus, these things will happen. But Jesus has given us the assurance that it will not last forever. And that those who are inflicting this kind of suffering and pain upon his people, he will take care of them. It's not our business to do that. I did not see the children of Israel fighting Pharaoh. I did not see them resisting. I did not see them being in fear or complaining. Well, they complained when they were in the wilderness. But they trusted God. And God came through. The last time I preached, like the first part of this message, I encourage everyone to read this little book called Last Day Events. Violent White. I want to share with you a passage from this book. Now there's there's so much that I could share, but time does not permit. But read the book. It's not very long, it's not very big, it's small. The chapter now there are two very important chapters relevant to this topic in this book. Chapter 17 is entitled, The Seven Last Plagues and the Wicked. And then right after it is chapter 18, The Seven Last Plagues and the Righteous. This passage is from chapter 18. Page 264 and 265, and it's captioned, God will provide. What is it captioned? Look at the person sitting next to you. Look them in the eye. Put on the best smile that you have and say to them, God will provide. Amen. The Lord has shown me repeatedly, she writes, that it is contrary to the Bible to make any provision for our temporal wants in the time of trouble. Have mercy. I could say the benediction and sit down now. Really? Yes. I didn't say it. See, if I just said that, you would probably disagree with me. You might want to stone me. But hey, I'm smarter than this. Protecting myself behind the prophet of the church. Prophet of the Lord. The Lord has shown me, not just once, but repeatedly, that it is contrary to the Bible to make any provision for our temporal ones in the time of trouble. I saw that if the saints had food laid up by them in the field in the time of trouble, then sword, famine, and pestilence 
oh, sorry, when sword, famine, and pestilence are in the land, it would be taken from them by violent hands, and strangers would reap their fields. Hmm. I remember hearing when I came to Australia, I don't know if it's probably urban legend, that 60s or the 70s, they, you know, some of the faithful Adventists in Kronbong buried cans of nut meat in the water guns for when the time of trouble comes. I don't believe that's true because I believe they would have read this. And I remember when the pandemic hit and you couldn't leave your home and all that kind of stuff, I wondered, wait, is this, is this the time that we go dig up these cans of nut meat? I don't know. But this is what it says. Then will be the time for us to trust wholly in God. And he will sustain us. I saw that our bread and water will be sure at that time. Didn't say bread and um, marmite and nut meat and all these things. It says bread and water. Pretty meager. Not luxurious. But enough. Amen. And that we shall not lack or suffer hunger. For God is able to spread a table for us in the wilderness. If necessary, he would send ravens to feed us as he did to feed Elijah. Or rain manna from heaven as he did for the Israelites. I saw that a time of trouble was before us. When stern necessity will compel the people of God to live on bread and water. In the time of trouble, none will labor with their hands. Their sufferings will be mental and God will provide food for them. The time of trouble is just before us. And then stern necessity will require the people of God to deny self and to eat merely enough to sustain life. But God will prepare us for that time. In that fearful hour, our necessity will be God's opportunity. I love it. To impart his strengthening power and to sustain his people. Bread and water is all that is promised to the remnant in the time of trouble. Last sentence. In the time of trouble, just before the coming of Christ, the righteous will be preserved through the ministration of heavenly angels. You see, God wants us to shift our, the focus from ourselves. On our intellect. On what we think we can do. Or how we think things will play out. He, you see, when you do that, it's focus still is on self. Clearly he's saying that he wants us to have total reliance on him. Total trust in him. Because when there is no intercessor in the heavenly sanctuary, guess what? We have to trust not on our own self to keep ourselves standing, but we have to rely and trust solely on Jesus by faith. So, what do I want to tell you in closing? I better read it because I wrote it down. Are the seven last plagues something to be afraid of? Are they? Well, it, I, the answer is it depends. Depends on where you are. If you're standing with Jesus, if you've rejected the beast and his mark, you have nothing to be afraid of. 
Is it something to make you angry? No, it's not. Is it something to cause us to lose our faith? Is it something that gives us hope? Yes, it does. It gives us joy. It gives us peace. When we see the seven last plagues are falling, we know that Jesus is on his way. When the time of trouble comes, we know that God's timetable, God's calendar is being executed with perfect precision. And we can know that he is in control. Things may seem like they are getting out of control. But God's people will know that he's in control and depend and trust in him completely. How many would like to, to say, Lord, today I want to pledge myself to trust in you wholly, no matter what the future may hold, but I trust in Jesus. If that's you, raise your hand towards heaven. Praise the Lord. And you may wonder, well, Pastor, why are you doing this? No, it's important. Decisions, actions, before an action can take place, a decision must be made in the mind. And every time we do these things, we are practicing, we are rehearsing, we are reinforcing, we are recommitting and repledging ourselves to be faithful to Jesus. May God bless all of his people. This message was made available by the Dora Creek Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit doracreek.church.
voice of praise saying, Follow the path of Jesus. Up next, the Clark family will sing, The Old Story Will Never Grow Old. Oh, no, the old story will never grow old. How Jesus died to save my soul. Oh, no, the old story will never grow old. That story will never grow old. I went to the church one lonely night, and I sat way back, for my soul was not right. The preacher was preaching how Jesus died for sin-filled world. He gave up his life, oh no, the old story will never grow old. How Jesus died to save my soul Oh no, the old story will never grow old That story will never grow old I went to the altar and knelt down in prayer I cried, Lord of mercy, and he pardoned me there Then he lifted my burden, brought peace to my soul. What made my life new was that story so old. Many years have passed by since I met the Lord. I remember that night when that story was told. Time has no hold on the message it brings. That story is old. But it still blesses me, oh no The old story will never grow old How Jesus died to save my soul Oh no, the old story will never grow old That story will never grow old That story This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.